Welcome, true crime fans. I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Big thank you to Tom for recommending today's case. Thank you, Tom. This case is out of upstate New York, and it has a ton of twists and turns. But by the time you're finished with it, if you're all caught up on Going West and you're looking for more episodes, we just over the weekend came out with a new bonus episode. It is the murder of Allison Baden Clay. That case is out of Australia, and you can listen to it on Apple Podcast subscriptions or over on Patreon. The links are in the description of this episode. Yes. And we have almost 90 other bonus episodes that you can listen to. They're all ad-free and all full length. And these cases are from all over the world. They're international, and we also do some in the U.S. as well. And they are cases that we will not cover on Going West. So make sure you go check those out. Subscribe to Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to Patreon. Or if you don't want to subscribe but you still want to help the show, leave us a nice review over on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That really helps us out. And we appreciate it. Thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. Let's dive into the details. All right, guys. This is episode 301 of Going West. So let's get into it. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow, or find an awesome template. No judgment. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes that you're going to find interesting. Jordan is super charismatic and well-voiced, so I loved listening to his recent episode with Susan Casey called Unraveling Mysteries in the Ocean's Darkest Depths. It was so creepy and interesting, and he goes across every category with other episodes like Romance Twister, My Mister Once Dated My Sister, or his monthly Skeptical Sunday episodes about controversial topics from crystal healing to cannabis to Ouija boards. There is something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. In April of 1994, an 18-year-old woman was abducted from her job in upstate New York. After rumors spread that she had been buried in the woods and the potential wrongful imprisonment of the prime suspect, 
police revealed that the young woman was hiding pertinent information from her inner circle that may have led to her death. This is the story of Heidi Allen. Heidi Marie Allen was born on September 14, 1975 in New Haven, New York, to Sue and Ken Allen, and she had an older sister named Lisa. New Haven is a small city in Oswego County in upstate New York, nestled on the shores of Lake Ontario and not far at all from the border of Canada. Heidi's sister Lisa explained that violent crime was unheard of in this small community of less than 3,000 people, saying, quote, It's New Haven, New York. The keys are in the car out in the driveway. The house is unlocked. Heidi was known to be warm and giving from a young age, always putting the needs of others ahead of her own. And actually, Lisa remembered Heidi sometimes coming home hungry from elementary school because she had given her lunch away to kids who didn't have anything to eat. That's so sweet. I know. That's just who she was, like, even as a kid. A loyal friend and a selfless girl, Lisa said, quote, She was a happy person. Any of her friends would tell you that she had a contagious smile. She was always smiling. Even if she was miserable, she still smiled. In high school, Heidi played on the soccer and volleyball teams and was dubbed the Tower of Power in volleyball because she was just really good at sports, like athleticism came naturally to her. She and Lisa remained incredibly close throughout their teen years, and Lisa called them more like best friends than sisters, and remembered fondly that they would set aside every Thursday for sister days, just to make sure that they had adequate quality time together. Heidi also interned as a school counselor and volunteered with a local program for elementary school kids whose parents were divorced, and this was called the Banana Splits. Lisa recalls her as a gifted caretaker and that nurturing children came naturally to Heidi, saying, quote, She just knew she wanted to keep working with kids. She wanted kids to know they mattered and that somebody cared about them. At 15 years old, Heidi started dating a new boyfriend named Brett Law, and he remembered a totally different side of Heidi, recalling that before they started dating, she had fallen in with the wrong crowd. So when they began seeing each other, Brett had even told her that if they were going to get serious about their relationship, she would need to take some space away from these people that she was surrounding herself with, and she agreed. But the reason why she became affiliated with these bad crowd types was because Melissa, who was Heidi's cousin, was a young mother and she needed help with her baby. And Heidi loved kids and she just obviously wanted to help her cousin out. So she babysat for her a lot. But this often turned into Melissa drinking and partying while Heidi watched the baby late into the evening. So at just 15 years old, Heidi was surrounded by drinking and drugs with Melissa's friends and acquaintances. Now, this arrangement seemed to reach its low point when Heidi went to a lake party with Melissa and the girls left Melissa's sleeping baby in the car. And when the party had been broken up by police, Heidi's aunt was called to come and get Heidi and the baby. Ken's sister, who's Heidi's Aunt Martha, remembers, quote, She got called because Heidi was only 15 and had the baby that she was watching in the car asleep, you know, so my sister went and got it. And that's how my husband got involved. She was at these parties. So Heidi's uncle, who was a town justice, really wanted to help Heidi get back on track and away from this new group of friends that she was getting sucked into. So Heidi was then legally classified as a PINS, 
or a person in need of supervision. And in exchange for helping out local law enforcement, she would avoid trouble for her involvement in the party. Martha said, quote, He contacted somebody and talked about her doing a pins, and if she gave them information, they wouldn't charge her. And thus, at just 15 years old, Heidi became a confidential informant for the police, and she was given the codename Julia Roberts. Like, what, what? This is so weird to me, though, because it's like, this isn't 21 Jump Street. Like, she's a 15-year-old girl, and you're making her a police informant to bust drug dealers? It feels, like, really irresponsible. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, Martha recalls that some members of their family weren't even aware that Heidi was doing this until after she disappeared, saying, quote, We kind of kept all that hidden because it was connected to Melissa and the drug stuff she was into and got Heidi involved in, and Heidi got in all this trouble. And sadly, it seems like all of this is what may have led to her disappearance. Martha said, quote, To be all honest, I mean, all of this happened because of Melissa and how she got Heidi into trouble because of how she used to babysit. And so we kind of kept that under wraps during the whole Heidi thing for my brother's sake and, you know, my mother's to find out that they were into drugs. So tensions had really been rising in Heidi's family home because of her involvement in this local partying scene. So she actually moved out of the house and moved in with her grandmother for this fresh start. And after that... Heidi really stayed out of trouble. She got a job working at the local convenience store, which was the D&W, because the two families who owned it, who are the Duels and the Wills, were very good friends with the Allen family. She and her boyfriend, Brett, started to become serious, although one of the owners at the store where she worked, so D&W, really was bothered by this because he felt that Brett was too controlling. So about a year and a half after Heidi started informing, the police asked Heidi to attend a party with the same people that she and Melissa had been partying with in the past in order to bring them some new information about the local drug trade. God, and she's like 17 years old. Yeah, this is just not a good look. So they wanted her to bring a new person in, potentially this undercover cop, and introduce him to people at the party. But Brett said that he was really scared for her and told her not to do this. He felt that Heidi was too young to be putting herself in potentially life-threatening situations with potentially dangerous people. But despite the risk, Heidi was viewed as headstrong, honest, and determined by those that she was helping. After graduating high school in 1993, Heidi was looking to the future excitedly. She enrolled at Onondaga Community College, studying human services, and hoped to get a job counseling or teaching, because again, she really loved helping children. So the following year, in the spring of 1994, 18-year-old Heidi was about to finish up her associate degree, and according to Brett, she had sent over 150 resumes to potential future employers, including one to the Oswego County District Attorney. Heidi was diligent, she was very hardworking, and during this time, Brett remembered that she would spend all day at school, work a night shift at the D&W, do homework late into the evening, and then get up in the morning to do it all over again. Easter Sunday, April 3rd, 1994, was a cold and rainy one in New Haven, and Heidi was working a morning shift so that she could spend the rest of the holiday with her family. She headed to the DNW, which was located on the corner of State Routes 104 and 104B, around 5.30 a.m. that morning. Her boyfriend, Brett, went into the shop with her, which was something that he did often as a safety measure and waited until it was getting busy before he headed out. Shortly after he did, 
Heidi vanished and was never seen again. At 7.45 a.m. that morning, so a couple hours into our shift, a customer came in and found the store empty, unlocked, and with all the lights on, but the cash register had been left unattended. Heidi's keys were still on the counter and her red Pontiac Sunbird station wagon was still in the parking lot. The customer thought this whole situation was really weird, so they flagged down a nearby squad car to let them know of the very suspicious circumstances in the store, and police began alerting her family that something seemed to have gone wrong. Then two hours after Heidi disappeared, a local man named Richard Thibodeau called the police and claimed that he had likely been the last person in the shop before she disappeared. He explained that he had gone in that morning to purchase two packs of cigarettes. The two were alone in the store and he had checked out, told her to have a nice day and left. And this was at 7.42 a.m., leaving just a three minute window for Heidi to be abducted. So multiple people who had been in the vicinity of the gas station that morning reported seeing a van, either white or blue in color, parked in the parking lot. Another noticed a van, quote, driving very erratically, wrestling or struggling with somebody. One passerby claimed that he believed to have been driving by at the time that Heidi was being escorted out of the store. This man claimed that he saw Heidi being walked out of the store by two large men and into a blue van. One was about 5 feet 11 inches tall, older than the other, and walking alongside Heidi and the other man. The man who appeared to be walking Heidi out of the store was a little over six feet tall, but the witness said that he couldn't really tell their builds because they were wearing coats. When asked who he thought abducted his girlfriend, Brett said, quote, I honestly do think that it's someone she knew and trusted, got her around the counter somehow with a conversation. She was real friendly to everyone she knew. I just wonder why this is his immediate assumption, because there's no evidence to point to her knowing this person. And if there was nobody else in the store when it happened, somebody easily could have, you know, accosted her from behind the counter. Especially if there were two men. Yeah, it would have been easier, you know, pretty easy to to, to pull her out of there and, and take power over her. So I wonder why that's his assumption. Just because she's friendly, it means that... She, I mean, this is a very small town, as I said. But yeah, I was about to say that. This is a town of 3,000 people, so. And, of course, with what she was doing being an informant, and Brett knew about all that stuff, and he didn't like it. So it does kind of make sense, but I don't know. It, it just feels like, like an interesting thing to say right off the bat. Well, the FBI did quickly put together a criminal profile for the offender, suggesting that it would be someone with a history of violence who had a fixation on the case. Two weeks passed with no sign of Heidi, so at this point, the New York State Governor approved the use of the National Guard in addition to the local search effort. Ground searches combed the thawing spring woodlands surrounding town, but there was still no sign of Heidi. Investigators worked alongside hundreds of volunteers, and it seemed that the whole town came together in the search, including the last person to see her before she was abducted, who again was Richard Thibodeau, the guy who bought those cigarettes that morning. So Richard, alongside his girlfriend Teresa, his brother Gary, and Gary's girlfriend Sharon, all came along to aid in the search efforts. But here's the thing, the Thibodeau brothers were already on the radar of local police. Richard owned a boxy white Chevy van similar to the one that a few witnesses claimed to have seen at the D&W that morning. 
So the same day that they came out to volunteer to search for Heidi, they were actually brought into the police station to be questioned about her abduction. Gary basically said that he had been at home sleeping with his girlfriend, which is a story that his girlfriend Sharon corroborated. And Richard maintained the same story that he had told police that that day that Heidi disappeared, he had purchased cigarettes from her that morning and left at 7.42 a.m. But Richard and Gary remained very helpful and super cooperative in the investigation, and they genuinely seemed like they wanted to help. Richard said in an interview with the police, quote, The bottom line is, there's a young lady missing, and I'm not going to have anything to do with it other than maybe to help find her. And remember, Richard willingly came forward to police. They didn't find him like he called them that day and said, oh, I actually think I was maybe the last person to see her because I was in there that morning. But Richard was questioned for eight hours straight and declined to have a lawyer present. He filled out the FBI's behavioral questionnaire, which did not seem to indicate that he had anything to do with the kidnapping. But Richard also took a polygraph and a few questions seemed to indicate that he might be lying. And we've said it before, we'll say it again, Polygraph tests are like notoriously faulty, but this kind of gave police renewed suspicion that Richard may be involved after all. So they asked him for a hair and blood sample to compare with samples found at the scene of Heidi's kidnapping and to cross-reference with another murder in Massachusetts, the murder of 24-year-old Lisa Ziegert, who had disappeared from similar circumstances almost exactly two years prior to Heidi's disappearance. On April 15th, 1992, Lisa was working in a gift shop in Agawam, Massachusetts, and seemed to vanish without a trace. Her body was recovered four days later on Easter, but was so far unsolved. So when Heidi went missing, also from a store and also on Easter, investigators kind of began to draw a connection between Lisa and the Thibodeau brothers because they were also from Massachusetts and the two crimes were just like eerily similar. And strangely, Gary and Sharon happened to have driven their car to Agawam the day after Heidi vanished because they were having a part replaced on the undercarriage of their vehicle. So police jumped on this right away, believing that the old car part may have evidence on it that would connect them to Heidi's abduction, like maybe her blood. So police scoured their car in addition to Richard's van and the Thibodeau's brother's property as well. But there was no evidence that pointed to either Lisa or Heidi ever having been in or around either of the vehicles or on their property. However, convinced that they had their murderers, police would not give this up. And a quick update on Lisa's case. So her case was unsolved for 25 years, but in 2017, a man named Gary Shara confessed to the murder via a handwritten letter to his girlfriend. How strange is that, that they're both named Gary? I know, it is It is pretty weird. Um, he also did write a separate apology letter to Lisa's family, and he's currently serving a life sentence. So her case did not appear to connect to Heidi's after all. But let's get back to Heidi's case here. So on May 25th, 1995, despite their massive lack of proof, Richard and Gary Thibodeau were arrested for the abduction of Heidi Allen. Of course, you know, there was no evidence tying them to the crime, so police announced publicly that their arrest was for a prior drug charge, for which they had never served time for. But privately, Richard and Gary knew that they were on the hook for Heidi's abduction. 
and the police were just basically buying time at this point. So the men were extradited back to their home state of Massachusetts after their arrest, where they were held without bail. But it wasn't just them who were going down for this, because police also arrested Sharon Raposa, who was, again, Gary's girlfriend, and charged her as an accomplice. So shocked at this, Sharon called her dad and said, quote, Gary's got nothing to do with any of that. Then, a tip came forward that would change the course of one of their lives permanently. Two men who were incarcerated with Gary in the Massachusetts State Prison claimed that Gary had admitted to them that he had abducted and killed Heidi Allen before burning her remains. According to prosecutors, the men were not offered reduced sentences for coming forward with this information. So, you know, there didn't really seem to be a reason why they would lie about this. Unless they had, unless they didn't know that they wouldn't get reduced sentences. Sure. And then they said it and then they just wanted to stick with it so that they weren't, you know, seen as lying about something so important. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I don't know. But again, also, you know, this is just their word. So neither Gary nor Richard ever changed their stories. And Gary called the accounts of the fellow inmates completely fabricated. But it was convincing enough for the court. So in the words of one of the inmates, quote, The day he left jail, Gary told me to keep my mouth shut about everything he had told me. Not to say anything to anybody. He said her head was bashed with a shovel and she was mutilated. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel 
which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe. For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. On Monday, June 19th, 1995, a jury returned a verdict of guilty to Gary Thibodeau. And the testimonies from the two prison informants was the deciding factor in the case. 
Gary's jaw dropped when the sentence was read in front of the courtroom, and Sharon, his friends, and his family let out sobs. Police also attempted to charge Sharon with perjury for stating that she had been home with Gary on Easter Sunday that year when they believed the men had really been at the DNW. They even offered her witness protection in exchange for turning him in, but she stuck by him and like the brothers, her story never changed. In fact, even after he was put in prison to serve a 25-year-to-life sentence, the two remained married. However, on September 29, 1995, Richard Thibodeau was acquitted of what his brother was charged with, which really doesn't make any sense because- Because Richard was the one that was actually in the store that morning. Well, and multiple people called and said they were driving by and they saw a van. Somebody had called saying that they saw Heidi being carried away by two men. So it's like, if you're going to charge Gary, then who's the other accomplice when Richard was the one who went to the store? Like- I feel like you can't charge Gary and not Richard. Yeah, and you've been spotlighting the both of them this entire time. Yeah, so then it just feels like, it almost feels like they didn't, because the informants had specifically said that Gary confessed this to them, which really is not even enough evidence anyway. They were like, oh, well, we can get away with this. We'll at least move forward with it, even though it felt like such a, such a weak case. But it happened. So obviously, Richard was very relieved that he was not going to be charged. And he told a reporter, quote, I was expecting the worst, you know, and the best came out of it. When you're honest, it works out. So after this, he really turned his focus on getting his brother's conviction overturned, saying, quote, Gary is just as innocent as I am. Gary's attorney called his conviction a stunning miscarriage of justice, claiming that the police had quickly thrown together a case against an easy target simply because Heidi was an informant. But obviously, this doesn't look good for the police anyway, considering Heidi was an informant and she was so young and had likely gotten into trouble because she was put in these very dangerous situations. So they didn't really want it to look like they had willingly kind of sent a teenage girl to slaughter for their own needs. So it just seemed like it would be better for the crime to have absolutely no connection to the work that Heidi was doing for police. And this would be if Gary was the one behind it. Exactly. It just seemed like it was better optics for them. Right. And kind of convenient for the police that Heidi's kidnapping was maybe a random act of senseless violence from just a very evil individual. But Regardless of whether or not that was true, there was no movement made in the case for nearly 20 years after they put Gary in prison. So after this, Gary's team filed an appeal and later for a retrial, but they were denied on both counts. But Heidi's body was still unaccounted for, and her family was still waiting for answers. But then, in 2013, a witness came forward with new information. A woman named Tanya Priest came to the police and claimed that she had heard a confession years prior, but she had been so scared for the lives of her children that she didn't report this until years later. So apparently, Tanya and her husband were over at the home of her husband's friend, who was James Steen, and James's girlfriend, Vicky. Now, James was bragging that he, along with two of his friends, Michael Borer and Roger Breckenridge, had gotten away with the abduction and murder of Heidi Allen, and remember, a tip came into police that two men had taken Heidi in their van. So according to Tanya's recollection of that day, 
James explained that the three of them, who were involved in the local drug operations, had discovered that Heidi was an informant for the police and planned to get even. In Tanya's words, quote, She was killed because she was going to rat on some big guys in the area. So after taking her into their van, the men drove Heidi to Roger Breckenridge's house and beat her in the garage before dismembering her and discarding her remains in the woods next to the town of Mexico, New York, which is about a 10-minute drive from New Haven. When Tanya refused to believe him, she claimed that he got so angry with her about it and offered to show her. But Tanya kept quiet about this because she was afraid that something was going to happen to her too if she told police. So obviously, you know, this is just Tanya's word, and it feels difficult to know whether to trust it or not, but get this. Years later, James actually strangled his wife Vicky unconscious, and then in 2010, he killed her and her new boyfriend in a fit of rage. Afterwards, he called the father of Vicky's boyfriend to brag about what he had done. So now with James in prison, Tanya finally felt safe enough to come forward with the information that she had, and then three other people came forward to corroborate her account, telling police that James had also told them what he had done to Heidi. So Tanya attempted to aid the investigation and offered to call an acquaintance of hers who was Jennifer Westcott, and this is Roger Breckenridge's girlfriend. So Jennifer and Heidi had been the same age when Heidi disappeared, so 18 years old. And Jennifer used to babysit for Roger, his wife, and their five children, and remembers getting paid in cocaine. On the day that Heidi disappeared, which again was Easter Sunday, 1994, Jennifer had gone over to Roger's house and the two had slept together for the first time. And after he separated from his wife, they actually started dating. So a Facebook message to a friend, which was written much later, of course, revealed that Jennifer had said to a friend that she was sometimes afraid of Roger, saying, quote, I don't want to be the next one dead in a box in the woods. However, when asked about this by a lawyer, Jennifer claimed that someone else must have written that on her account. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, she said she did not do this. But basically everything that Jennifer says is super up in the air, which I'll tell you about in a second. But so later, Tanya called Jennifer Westcott on a recorded line to kind of try to obtain new information about the abduction and murder. And this is a conversation which Tanya handed over to the police. Now, according to Jennifer's account of that Sunday, again, Easter 1994, the three men showed up to one of their houses and made Heidi wait in the car while they figured out what to do with her. When Tanya asked her who actually killed Heidi, Jennifer said that she didn't know. But when questioned about the motive behind the kidnapping and murder, Jennifer responded simply, cocaine. All I know was that it was for cocaine. So based on this conversation, Jennifer was obviously brought in for questioning because she was willingly telling Tanya this information, but, and it seemed like she knew a lot about what happened to Heidi and what happened in this case. So when police were asking her about it, she recanted everything she said 
and claimed that Tanya had edited the conversation together to look like Jennifer was making accusations that she had not made. I don't which is think the most insane thing to say. Yeah, again, this this isn't like like you were recorded in a conversation. And your excuse is, oh well, Tanya must have edited that. Yeah, I, I don't, well, I don't even think do I don't think Tanya has the ability to edit a phone conversation. Yeah, like that's insanity. So she also then claimed that she had been humoring Tanya by telling her what she thought Tanya wanted to hear, telling them, quote, I lied to her. I always gave her the attention. She wanted attention. I was following what she was saying. She always wanted to be the center of attention. So again, just a really weird excuse to try to get out of it. And honestly, I mean, Jennifer could feel like she would be in danger by saying this, just like Tanya had felt for so many years. So I understand why Jennifer wouldn't want this to get out, but it's like the police already know. They have you on a recorded line. Help Heidi's family and just tell them what you fucking know. Yeah, exactly. So Jennifer also failed a polygraph test that was administered to her during this line of questioning. But obviously, as we said, those can be very faulty. She was actually a key witness in Gary's appeal hearing, but she went back on everything she said in the phone call with Tanya. When Gary's defense attorney asked Jennifer about her comment that the reason for Heidi's murder was cocaine, Jennifer said flatly, quote, I said a lot of lies. I don't understand this question. But the district attorney at the time called her a pathological liar and claimed that it was likely that she didn't know what she was talking about. Around this same time, another former partner of Rogers also came forward with information. Rogers' former wife Tracy, who he had separated with shortly after Heidi's disappearance, remembered that Roger and James had driven a van out to a scrapyard to get rid of it. And this was a van that matched the description of the one believed to have been at the D&W on the morning of Heidi's disappearance. And Tracy remembered that her husband said that there was blood in the back seat. But, and this is so insane, the men have yet to be convicted due to witness credibility concerns and the lack of evidence. And Michael Borer is now believed to be living in Ohio, while James Steen is serving a life sentence in a New York state prison for the murders of his estranged wife and her boyfriend. And Roger Breckenridge served time in prison on an unrelated case after being caught stealing two tractors and then failing to pay court-ordered restitution to the victim. All three men have continued to proclaim their innocence. Yeah, and it's kind of funny because I was doing a little bit of digging on Facebook and I actually found some profiles. If you dig hard enough, you can find them. And actually somebody mentioned in one of the comments something about Heidi Allen. Wait, on what? On whose Facebook? On uh, Roger Breckenridge Sr.'s Facebook. So if you're if you're interested, you can go find it if you want to go into that that rabbit hole. Well, this, this portion of the case is so frustrating because it's like somebody's in prison. Gary went to prison for this case and... These other guys seem like they totally did it and they're not being put in prison for it when there seems to be more evidence and actually more credible witness statements, i.e. Jennifer. But then, of course, Jennifer made herself look so bad by lying and making her statements so confusing and confusing enough that she was then called a pathological liar. So now they're not going to believe anything she says even though she seemed to be speaking honestly on this recorded phone call. So it's just so frustrating. Yeah, and obviously I don't know the character of Gary and Richard Thibodeau, but it does feel really heartbreaking 
the fact that there was just really no evidence tying them to this crime. Well, especially because, I totally agree with you, especially because on August 12th, 2018, after spending 23 years in prison, Gary Thibodeau died after a battle of COPD, which is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and he died in prison. 23 years into his sentencing. And before he died, he said, quote, they know I didn't do it. Just three weeks before his death, he was asked in an interview if he still had hope of being freed. And he said, quote, hope. That's a funny word. I have so many medical problems with me. It don't matter if they let me free or not. This ain't no life existence. He claims that he was optimistic after the information began to come out about James, Michael, and Roger. But five years after Tanya came forward, Gary was still locked up. So he said, sadly, quote, I've been innocent since day one. I just figured, well, there ain't no chance now. No sense in giving them the 25 years. I'll let my body go to hell and hope I can die a lot sooner. I ain't going to kill myself, but if it happens naturally, that's fine with me. I've been driving this vehicle for 62 years. I know it's just about done. I don't want to die, but I can feel it. That I don't have a whole lot of time left. But I'm not wishing and wanting and begging like I was before. Sharon passed away in 1997, so just shortly after Gary was incarcerated. And Richard said sadly about all of this, quote, He lost everything he owns. He lost his home. He lost everything including his wife. Of course, Heidi's abduction had an indelible effect on the Allen family. Just a year after she disappeared, Heidi's father Ken suffered a heart attack. And while he did survive, it slowed him down significantly and he was no longer able to work. In the year after Heidi was taken, her mom, who was a teacher, was only able to get through one day of school. Lisa, Heidi's sister, remembered, quote, she went back in September and made it through opening day with the teachers, and I think she made it through half of the day with the kids. And she never went back to work again. She barely left the house until my daughter was born. Lisa has kept both Heidi's memory and the search for her very much alive, but says that every year that passes gets a little harder. Lisa still thinks of her as perpetually 18, but remembers, quote, You know, those are the little things you don't realize. When I see her friends and they're married and their kids are now in high school. Heidi and Lisa's mom, Sue, passed away on September 14th, 2015, which is actually Heidi's birthday. But Lisa continues to plead for those involved to come forward, saying, quote, there's something somebody saw or heard that will help us find Heidi. You know, my mom had to pass away without knowing. I don't want my dad to. But Lisa also says that she's prepared to pass the responsibility down to her own children and her children's children if necessary, saying, quote, Heidi needs a voice, and if I don't talk to the media, nobody is going to. I want people to know she was a good kid. She was one of the most joyful and selfless people, and I can only imagine she would have been an even more beautiful adult. She just wasn't given that opportunity. Heidi stood at about 5 feet 11 inches tall. She had blue eyes and long, curly, light brown hair. She wore either glasses or contact lenses, and her ears were pierced. If you have any information about the disappearance of Heidi Allen, please call the Oswego County Sheriff's Office at 
3302. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And on Friday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. What a crazy story. It just irks me so much when somebody goes to prison and there doesn't seem to be nearly enough evidence to put them there. I know that Gary and his brother Richard had been involved in some minor crimes before, but to go away for a murder when we really just don't have enough evidence to prove that he did, and then for all these years later for it to come out that these three other guys may be involved and they're just getting away with it if they did do it, like, man, it's so horrible. Yeah, it's extremely frustrating, and that's why I feel like it's very important to share this episode as it is with, you know, every episode that we cover. But if you can share this episode, it may help push this into the spotlight. It may get these three guys convicted if they are involved. Yeah, they are still out there. So thank you guys so much for tuning in and we will see you on Friday. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. decisions for your company, you always look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.